Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's just start the ball rolling. Lately, the news cycle has shifted, and we're seeing a selection bias towards infectious disease and outbreaks and also local climate catastrophes. Just uh, maybe it's happening all on the other side of the country or even on the other side of the planet, but we're hearing a lot about them. I get it. These are important topics, but there's also the fact that fear sells because fear generates clicks. So there's a magnification effect here that creates uh, initially stress and anxiety initially, But ultimately, people drop into fatality and disengagement. I think that is a bad idea. And we need to stay informed and engaged. So I'm here to address the latest news about polio and help put things in perspective and put things in proportion, if I can, in order that you should stay engaged, that you should be staying with us on this. I do think that it's important. So... First of all, the news. There's been a spate of polio outbreaks worldwide, and it's kind of gotten, as I said, into the top of the news cycle. Uh, The discovery of polio virus in New York State, London, and Jerusalem this year took many by surprise, but the public health officials are like, hmm, well, we were kind of waiting for that. It was, you know, we were only waiting for this moment to arrive. The virus is found primarily in its uh, wild form in Pakistan and a couple of other countries. It's not very common. Uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan are are the two big ones. And the problem is that's not the only place you can get polio is from the wild type virus. The virus found in New York State, London, and Jerusalem was derived from the oral polio vaccine that is used in some countries. And so far, there have only been two cases of polio-related paralysis reported, one in Jerusalem this last February and one in New York in June. But we're bummed here in the United States medicine about that case because it's the first such case in the United States in nearly a decade. Wastewater samples in all of three areas suggest that the virus is circulating much more widely. And this is because, well, do the math. It's like the old farmer's almanac. You know, you see one rat turd, you've got a hundred rats. Well, polio causes irreversible paralysis in less than one, than one in 200 of the susceptible people it infects. So if you've got one case of paralysis, it suggests that you have a lot of people who have been infected and who may be actively spreading the virus themselves. If it's showing up in the wastewater, well, it's also showing up in, among other things, diapers. So, you know that thing about washing your hands after you change uh, somebody's diapers or after you, uh, yeah, before you eat? Those are going to be really important values to cling to even as the latest global pandemic starts to recede. So first, let's differentiate between the wild polio virus and the vaccine-related virus. 
As I said, wild polio circulates in only two countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And uh, in Pakistan, there have been nine cases reported this year so far. But the vaccine-derived poliovirus appears periodically, particularly in Africa and Asia. And these cases come from a widely used oral vaccine that contains live weakened virus, which sometimes actually mutates into a dangerous form capable of infecting the nervous system. This is called a back mutation, and it's a, a, a real challenge because you can't know when the virus is going to change uh, into, a time, into a type that can infect the nervous system. The attenuated virus that's used in the vaccine can't, but can we rely on it to re- not back mutate? And the answer there is not really. Now, in the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, the, they haven't used this vaccine since the 60s. Instead, they opt for using an injectable vaccine containing inactivated virus. This vaccine can keep the virus from infecting the nervous system, but it's not as effective as the oral virus at reducing viral shedding and halting transmission. We switched in the United States to the IPV, or injectable poliovirus, back in the 90s. And part of the reason that that switch was made was because of the very, very rare cases where someone's oral polio would mutate, back mutate, and a small outbreak of polio would occur. But because polio is a poop-to-mouth virus, it's something that can get into the water supply, and then if the water supply is contaminated, well, then you've got a problem. It's also, of course, as I said, a diaper disease, and as long as proper hygiene is used, your your individual is uh, who's changing the diapers isn't at risk, particularly if they're vaccinated. About 94% of children in the United States age five or six are vaccinated, but I want to I can't emphasize this enough. The unvaccinated people, if they are exposed to this, have a 1 in 200, roughly, chance of some degree of paralysis. And this virus is very, very good at finding unvaccinated individuals. For example, in the 1990s, there was an outbreak in the Netherlands. It got started in a community that had a relatively low vaccination rate, although the overall coverage in the country is more than 90%. Well, once that got rolling, it resulted in two deaths and 59 cases of paralysis, and that one happened 14 years after the country's last endemic case of polio. So, ironically, and it is kind of ironic actually, the oral virus was intended to work laterally by transmission to others, uh, like caregivers, they would be exposed to small amounts of the virus and they would get a subclinical infection. And when you're infected with the oral type of the virus, you actually get gut immunity as well as blood immunity. More about that later. So wastewater surveillance is now a thing. Uh, The uh, New York began testing their wastewater in July after they heard about this first case of polio. And London has been monitoring since uh, since February. Now, London, of course, has a lot of Pakistan migration 
uh, in migration. And so that's been a, a thing that they've had to be concerned about. And right now, it's mainly the wastewater treatments in the north and east. And there haven't been any cases of paralysis. So that's good. Uh, in New York, it's been found not just in New York City, where the paralysis case was, but also in two other counties. This is a little worrisome because this suggests that it's spreading in the population under the radar. Now, it's a problem. It takes a lot of resources and labor to do poliovirus testing from wastewater. But we already had surveillance systems set up to monitor monitor COVID-19. So, ironically, government-funded infrastructure can be repurposed. Who knew? Well, other countries are reacting. England, for example, has just launched an ambitious effort to vaccinate all children age one through nine in London. And hopefully this will nip the outbreaks in the buds. But the campaigns in London and New York will use injectable vaccine. So they're not going to stop virus transmission. And maybe in six months or so, if wastewater testing shows that it's still spreading, it might be necessary to, you know, go to plan B. Now, in 2020, the World Health Organization listed a new polio vaccine for emergency use. This vaccine is like the oral polio. It's, uh, it uses a weakened polio virus. But now, through the magic of CRISPR, researchers have used the knowledge of the virus genome, including how come it's mutating, right? It's mutating because there is an error-prone enzyme involved in replicating the viral genome. And it tends to create a suite of mutations that keep the virus, uh, so that allow the virus to back mutate. So what they've done now is they've fixed that, that enzyme to create mutations that will prevent the virus from being able to regain its ability to attack the nervous system. Now, this vaccine has not undergone large-scale human testing. It's not approved in the UK or the US. But by the way, despite the testing not being done, there's more than 100 million people, primarily in Africa, who have received it. And there are, in those areas, no signs of vaccine-derived poliovirus emerging so far. Over the years, in particularly in the last 20 years, there have been many serious outbreaks around the world in developing countries, but very little in the first world, especially in places where there's armed conflict, like Afghanistan and Yemen, vaccination is extremely difficult. We need to vaccinate these children in the challenged areas or the disease will come back globally. This is not, repeat, not a reason not to accept refugees. But it is a really good reason to vaccinate, uh, to fund, I should say, vaccination of refugees wherever quantities of people are moving when they go through camps, when they go across borders. The price of admission needs to be vaccination, and that means a robust a robust funding system. So this got me thinking about history, and I know a, knew a little bit about the history of polio, but I think I'm going to just walk you through a little history lesson because there's a lot instructive here in the history of science. In 1916, 
a major polio epidemic occurred in the U.S. The epicenter was New York City. Approximately 20,000 people, 20, excuse me, 27,000 people fell ill, 6,000 died, and many children were paralyzed. Not much was known about it. Most of the infected people had no symptoms at all. They could just spread it. And so it seemed to those on the ground at the time that just randomly selected children suddenly became paralyzed. My child could be next, right? This situation was hugely frightening. Then, in 1921, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was infected with polio at the age of 39. Now, Roosevelt was well-known nationally. He had just lost the election for vice president of the United States. That such a wealthy and powerful American politician could be afflicted by the disease and become paralyzed, well, that meant it's not just the kids, it could be me. Cases of paralysis from polio grew in number each summer. There was a real surge in the summer, and this caused parents to just dread summer vacation. Parents forbade their children from going to swimming pools, going to the beach, movie theaters, bowling alleys, public restrooms. I remember reading some memorials about children uh, from the adults who had been children during the polio summers, talking about essentially going home to a lockdown and not being able to play with their friends or enjoy any of the sort of traditional summer vacation activities because everyone was so afraid. FDR started a philanthropic organization whose major goal was to develop a polio vaccine. This organization, you'll recognize, it later came to be called the March of Dimes. Now, there were two men, both New Yorkers and graduates of New York University Medical School, who were very interested in polio, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabine. And they would take two very different approaches towards developing a vaccine for polio. And in the process, they became bitter rivals. The rivalry would pit those who believed in inactivated vaccines against those who believed in live attenuated vaccines. So let's talk about 1949. At that point, three scientists, uh, Franklin, uh, sorry, John Enders, Frederick Robbins and Thomas Weller learned how to grow polio virus in the laboratory. Now, Jonas Salk immediately took advantage of this. He, he scaled up production of the virus and then went to work determining just the right amount of formaldehyde required to inactivate it while still keeping it intact enough for the immune system to recognize. The March of Dimes actually used all of its resources to back the development of a polio vaccine based on Salk's inactivated virus. The U.S. media focused on Salk's work, and in a clinical trial, Salk was able to establish that his vaccine was safe and also to determine the vaccine dose needed to get an antibody response. In 1953, Salk announced that he was ready to test the efficacy of his vaccine. By the way, since 1949, it took three years for phases one and two of the trial to be completed. So we got our vaccine in a year with a lot of effort and a lot of tech. But I just want to say it's it was possible even 70 years ago to put the pedal to the metal and get something good. Now, then came the question of how to do a, cl- a clinical trial. Uh, Sabine, for example, questioned the safety of the inactivated 
vaccine, as well as whether an antibody response was a meaningful marker for protection from infection. Remember, the injectable vaccine is only going to raise IgG, just like your COVID vaccine. Many clinicians thought that it, under the circumstances of all of these people dying and getting infected, it was unethical to do a double-blind trial as people in the placebo group wouldn't benefit. This is an interesting point to consider, this idea that sometimes it's unethical to have a placebo group, even though we consider it scientifically necessary. Maybe we'll come back to that. But let's talk about the clinical trials. It was pretty amazing. They had 2 million children. Just about everybody between the ages of 6 to 8 were enrolled. All vaccinations needed to be completed before the end of the 1954 school year. So they conducted it in counties that had high rates of infection, therefore high rates of circulating virus. One of the three trials was a double-blind trial where neither the physicians nor the children knew who was in the placebo group. In the other trial, all the enrollees were first, second, and third-grade elementary school children, but only the second-graders were vaccinated. And, and here's a problem. We'd call it a confound in science nowadays. Since no single company was able to manufacture the number of vaccines needed for the trial, many different manufacturers were used. And they tried to label them similarly, uh, but they also tracked them very carefully because there could be differences in quality. Now, at the end of summer, they had finished the trial, but we're talking massive amounts of data. So early Shout out to IBM. The computer company IBM was invited to help analyze the data. And in 1955, the March of Dimes announced that the Salk vaccine worked. So it was a race between Salk and Sabine. And Sabine had, uh, well, he was about 10 years older than Salk, and he'd been working on polio for his entire career. He was, in fact, the one who recognized that polio infected the intestines first because of fecal contamination of food or water. The natural history of polio is that after it multiplies in the intestine, it then spreads to the blood before it can be cleared by the immune system. In some cases, while it's in the bloodstream, it's able to enter the nervous system, and that's where the paralysis comes from. So based on his work, Sabine believed passionately that a good vaccine needed to provide protective immunity to the intestinal tract. And he spent years weakening or attenuating the polio virus by growing it repeatedly in different animals and in cells, many years dedicated. And eventually, he isolated a weakened form of the virus that he felt was safe to use in humans. Uh, now, the U.S. and the March of Dimes were like, you know, we got a vaccine, sulk. Uh, there's really no need for another one. So in order to get his vaccine validated, uh, we're in, you know, 1955, remember, Sabine turned to other countries for support. In the Soviet Union, millions of people participated in a clinical trial. And with its success established, the Soviet Union began manufacturing Sabine's vaccine. It's remarkable that at the height of the Cold War, an American polio vaccine got its first foothold in the communist world. And eventually... Sabine's vaccine was approved for use in the United States, and there was some arm wrestling that went on. And then in 1962, the Sabine vaccine replaced the Salk vaccine for uh, practical reasons. 
that's the one I received in childhood. And little pink sugar cube actually tasted good. It was easier to manufacture, cheaper to manufacture, and inactivation of the virus by careful treatment with formaldehyde was not required. The Sabine vaccine was also efficacious at lower doses, so you didn't have to give as much out. It didn't require syringes or needles. Swallow a drop of fluid on a sugar cube and you were there. Because it infected the intestine first, it elicited both IgG, bloodstream antibodies, and IgA antibodies. IgA is produced in the mouth, the nose, all, and it protects the surfaces of organs. Although it circulates in the bloodstream, it's not active there. So the IgA antibodies by the, from the Sabine vaccine prevented the polio from ever attaching to or infecting the intestinal cells. On, on the other hand, the Salk vaccine only induced a blood response, an IgG response. So it kept it from getting out of the gut into the blood and into the nervous system. But if someone vaccinated with the Salk vaccine got infected, the virus could still infect the intestine and potentially spread to others via the feces, kind of like a parasite that doesn't cause clinical symptoms but is able to expose others. The Sabine, and one last thing, the Sabine vaccine induces lifetime immunity, while the Salk offers protection for only a few years during an epidemic. So very... uh, over time, the Sabine vaccine soon became the standard vaccine. And because of large-scale use of this vaccine, poliovirus has largely been eradicated. There's now only a few natural infections, as I said, mainly in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And Sabine's vaccine is a live RNA virus. And since that virus, since RNA, remember it's an RNA virus, just, just like our friend COVID-19, RNA replication is error-prone. DNA, it's nice and solid, it's two things connected like a twisted ladder. RNA, it's, twist, it, it's like a single piece of spaghetti in a stew pot. So it can, uh, it's, hard, it's hard to get it hold still <laughs> to uh, reproduce it, and therefore the replication is error-prone. You don't have a check copy the way you do with DNA. When you make a mistake with DNA, the system can look at the other side and say, wait, that's a typo, and most of the time, fix the typo before it goes on to be introduced into the uh, permanent genome of the individual in question. Uh, When it mutates, the Sabine vaccine can infect others and it can cause paralysis. And that's why we still see, outside of the endemic areas, the occasional outbreak. Uh, Many countries including the United States, have returned to using the Salk vaccine. Uh, For, in hindsight, it's great that we have both of them. I'm wondering whether or not we want to dust off the Sabine vaccine uh, and take a look at this uh, this new one. It'll be interesting to see whether we are seeing breakthrough cases in people who were uh, vaccinated with the Salk vaccine. Most adults and elders or had the Sabine vaccine. A few, very, very few had this, didn't uh, get revaccinated. But unvaccinated children are at very high risk if something gets loose in a daycare. And I'm just hoping that we, like I said, dust off the 
uh, dust off the Sabine vaccine or get that new one that the uh, that I just spoke about out there and ready for prime time so that we can control outbreaks. The point is we have the technology. We have a great deal more technology than they had in between 1930 and 1950. And look what they accomplished with a little political will. We can accomplish great things if we just decide to do it. We're going to be doing some emails in just a moment. But uh, before that, I just a, a little brief comment on something that crossed my attention recently. A lot of my younger patients are and have been for you, years using uh, menstrual period trackers. Um, and I thought in the wake of the Dodd decision, the privacy concerns about this have taken on new implications for civil liberties. So about 160 million people have down worldwide, that is, have downloaded the commercial trackers. And the commercial period trackers have that little thing that everybody skips over about privacy. And when you use one of the commercial ones, you are giving away access to your name, your location, your email, your server ID, and your searches and the sites you visit. You're but wait, there's more. Some of these invasive practices include permitting an app to access your microphone or having intimate data like sexual encounters or a week of heavy menstrual flow, stuff like that, stored on a company's server miles away from you and miles away, uh, you're relying on their security. Now, there are non-commercial trackers out there uh, to them. And those are the ones I'm recommending that you look for. You should look for a tracker that is that works offline and only stores data on your phone or on a memory card. An example would be one called Periodical. Uh, another one that's very good is called Drip. Uh, both of these are open source, which means the code behind the app is free to share, share and check, and people you can bet who are code savvy are looking for security issues, and will bring them to your attention. In June of this year, a Spanish tech nonprofit called Eticas released a report analyzing the privacy practices of 12 popular fertility apps. The report concluded that only one of them, called WomanLog, didn't sell or share user data under any circumstance. In 2019, a UK-based privacy uh, charity called Privacy International warned how five period trackers actually shared user data with Facebook and other third parties for commercial purposes. And uh, a year later, that same charity did a kind of John Oliver and filed data requests to another handful of apps and concluded that the data that the apps collected was accessible via the company servers, thus making them vulnerable to hacks. And, you know, this is really a civil liberties issue. Uh, What you think is benign and harmless can really become a problem if the political climate shifts. Under the light of Dodd, data from period trackers could be used by prosecutors in the United States. In some states, uh, it's been, they've been very quick to introduce abortion bans. Uh, Some of them are very, have a lot of teeth and you can be prosecuted for murder. 
in Europe, in countries such as Poland, it's illegal to terminate a pregnancy. And if a woman in the U.S. gets an abortion, authorities could ask the company behind the app to provide data that could be used against her. It could be subpoenaed. And not just, you know, when her period stopped and when they restarted, but also something like her her search history. Did she Google for an abortion clinic? Well, that would be presumptive evidence of a crime, wouldn't it? Not only could it be used by the government, it could be used by family, partner. In summary, look for an app that stores your info on your device and works offline and read those privacy statements before you click accept. I can't emphasize that enough. It's gotten much easier to look at the cookies and the privacy things. They've simplified it. It's not the dreaded uh, slog that it used to be. It's worth doing. Emails. This one from Sandra in Chapel Hill. Subject. um, Ozembic Trulicity Biduron. I've been taking Ozembic successfully for several months. My latest labs are all within the normal range. This is a drug for diabetes. This is for the first time in 20 years normal. My insurance company is suggesting that I switch to Trulicity or Biduron. I'm sure this is because the other drugs cost less than Ozempic. Can we talk about the differences in these three drugs? Are they the same? I'd prefer not to switch drugs, and my physician is working on supporting my request. Well, part of the reason it might be cheaper is it might be cheaper for your particular insurance company because they have bought an exclusive deal with one of the other big pharma companies and therefore get a break on Trulicity or Bidiron, but don't get a break on Ozempic. Uh, so that can vary from insurance company to uh, insurance company. Do you have a sweetheart deal? Then it's cheaper. And by the way, the sweetheart deals change. And so I have gone through this in my career where I'll have someone on, let's say, Trulicity, and for two or three years, they're doing great. And then suddenly, it's no longer on the formulary, and I have to switch them. Now, with these drugs... It's less of an issue. We're going to talk about the fine uh, about the fine points here, but it can be a big issue if we're talking about blood pressure medicines uh, or other agents that really behave quite differently, even though they're quote unquote the same. So all of these drugs are glucagon-like peptide agonists. Glucagon-like peptide agonists, GLP one, and the GLP-1 is an extraordinarily cool thing. It's made in the gut, and it causes the body to to increase insulin secretion from the pancreas and to make more insulin. It also reduces the uh, glucagon secretion. That's a hormone that's supposed to protect you from low blood sugar. And it increases beta cell survivor, so it's actually protective to the pancreas. And when you get older, your pancreas cells that that are making insulin, the beta cells tend to die off. So protective is good. But it also has all these other actions. Uh, It decreases gastric emptying and GI motility. So it can cause some constipation, but more importantly, it slows down the absorption of that ice cream sandwich you just eat. It also... Uh, helps your body lose fluid, so it causes a mild diuresis. Uh, It increases insulin sensitivity in your muscles, so it gives your insulin uptake a boot. In other words, your insulin receptors in your muscles become more effective. It may increase bone formation 
and help fight against osteoporosis. Is this sounding good or what? It's good for cardiac output and heart contractility. It helps improve heart cell survival. It's cardioprotective. It's vasodilatory, so it lowers blood pressure most time. Sometimes it raises it. Hey, individual variation, right? And the brain, okay? First of all, it reduces your appetite. I have seen that really well with patients. But more importantly, uh, it improves learning and memory, and it's neuroprotective, and it reduces brain inflammation, and it reduces food cravings. It also makes food less tasty, which is sad, but if it's less tasty, you're less likely to overeat it, which for most of us is good. So the answer is, I th- they've already approved GLP-1 agonists for weight loss for these obvious reasons and for diabetes. And to answer your question, they are pretty much alike. There are minor variations. My suggestion for your doctor, if you want to stay with the drug you're on, which I totally support, is search Ozempic versus Trulicity head-to-head, that particular phrase. And what you'll find is a study. You'll rapidly find a study. You don't even have to go to Google Scholar that will show you that Ozempic is actually superior to Trulicity in a placebo-controlled double-blind trial. Nothing like throwing that at the insurance company. I assure you, it's powerful. And uh, when you when your doctor bothers to do that, that will pretty much take care. Check that box. The other thing is that Ozempic versus Bideron, if head-to-head, if you search that phrase and just substitute the other drug, what you will discover is that that agent actually has a different set of side effects. It's been shown in studies, which will also pop up for you, that it's more antigenic. In other words, people who are taking it tend to develop antibodies to the drug itself, which over the long term certainly possibly will affect its effectiveness. And people get a lump at the injection site. So you could possibly complain of that, and then that drug would be contraindicated. So this is what we have to do. All right, this is what we have to do in the United States of America in 2022, just to keep taking the drugs that we're already stable on. Now, before we go away from GLP, I just want to point out that I was reading this, particularly the stuff about, you know, reducing brain inflammation, improving memory, and I'm like, okay, let's search boosting GLP by natural products. And sure enough, in the Advanced Experimental Medical Biology Journal, uh, volume 1328, uh, page 513, published last year, a group of researchers showed that Many compounds, natural compounds that I tend to use for diabetics uh, actually work by having modulatory effects on the genetic expression and the secretion by the gut of GLP-1. So here's the list, folks. Berberine tea, that's uh, Camellia silensis, black tea or green tea, they both work. Curcumin, one of my faves. Cinnamon. Resveratrol, gardenia, which is interesting, 
Uh, I think that's I think that's probably related to the tea and wheat and soybeans. So all of these uh, foods have been shown to exert a favorable influence on the release of GLP. So just saying, maybe we should be all starting with berberine, like I do, when people have insulin sensitivity. Berberine and cinnamon are right at the top of my go-to list because guess what? They help with insulin resistance and help with responsiveness, and now I know why. And this from um, Anonymous in Cupertino. Fracture healing. Dear Dr. Don, do you have any supportive strategies for fracture healing? I have several stress fractures in my foot. It's been a few weeks in a walking boot at the recommendation of my doctor, but I continue to have pain. I've been taking vitamin D and bone broth and obtained a bone stimulator. Thank you for any recommendations. Well, Anonymous, my first question is, why do you have stress fractures? Uh, is it occupational? Is there a gait problem? Is it footwear? I mean, I like I, I see stress fractures usually in the tibia in runners, so a foot strep, uh, stress fracture is a little unusual. And I'm wondering if it's something about the way you walk that puts a stress across your forefoot that could be leading to this problem. And so you really need to take a look at orthotics and you need to take a look at your gait. Uh, for the orthotics, the simplest, uh, or whether they're needed or not, the simplest thing to do is go to a podiatrist with some of your old shoes. If you run, definitely old running shoes. If you are a walker, old walking shoes, whatever you've still got kicking around in the back of the closet for literally a muddy day. Uh, because they're, the way that the shoe deforms tell, tells the history of any problems that you might have with your gait. And there's lots of things like supination and pronation and twisting and arch issues that can develop over time. But there's something behind that uh, stress fracture. And the other question I have for you is, what are your vitamin D levels? And uh, do you have any osteoporosis? Now, in terms of treatment, I really like acupuncture, and it's a, it's a process called deep needling. And what, hap- what you do is essentially you bring in the foot. It's not that deep, obviously. You, you go right onto the area of the, fraction, of the fracture with an acupuncture needle, and then you hook that up to a stimulator. Typically, I've been trained to use uh, TENS stimulation. So that's your transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation device that you maybe see at the physical therapy place with someone else using, a little pad on the skin and a little thing. Uh, looks like an old-style transistor radio in size. And that unit uh, has various frequencies, and it just essentially sends a, a 150 hertz electrical signal through a wire, one pole goes to the bone, and the other pole goes to a nearby muscle. In the case of foot stress fractures, we usually use the calf. And what happens is you turn it up until the calf is either twitching or cramping, turn it back down, and uh, just adjust it and treat for about 20 minutes. And the deep needling has been shown in many clinical trials to really improve healing speed. And because stress fractures are so annoying and so easy to recur, I 
really like this technique, and I find it has been very successful. Almost all acupuncturists uh, anywhere would be able to do that, so you certainly don't need to make a, um, a special pilgrimage over the hill to Santa Cruz to get this done. I'd be happy to talk with any acupuncturist. You identify and give them the recipe. I believe in sharing knowledge. Duh, right? That's kind of what I do. I'm going to go to, well, it makes me a little sad, but I have a breakup letter. Dear Tim from Nebraska, I'm breaking up with you. I really have tried to work on our relationship. I've checked out the links you've sent me and pointed out the logical fallacies and misrepresentations. I've politely ignored your lack of critical thinking and credulity. Maybe I have to admit that I've been using you a little, just a little bit, to keep track of what craziness is out there uh, on the Internet uh, this week, running around on the web, about vaccination, COVID, the conspiracy du jour. (sighs) But it's time for me to end our relationship. I've lost respect for your judgment, and I want to stop pretending. Goodbye, and be safe. Signed, Dr. Don. Let's give you something useful to use towards the end of the show. I always like to do that. This is an article about using topical capsaicin for acute trauma pain. So capsaicin is a topical agent derived from a genus of red pepper, and it has been used for the treatment of neuropathic and chronic pain. Its action is interesting It depletes the nervous system, the pain-sensing nerve fibers of a compound called substance P, which uh, is got this wonderful other name. You can see why we call it substance P, transient receptor potential vanilloid subtype 1. Yeah, substance P. Uh, Good nickname. And so many studies have looked at... uh, oral and topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and compared them with opiates and acetaminophen. But a recent study looked at topical non-steroidals. So this would be your aspercream. There are several non-steroidal drugs that are used for trauma and tropical capsaicin. And so they used uh, a 0.05% capsaicin gel. This is available commercially. And these were people who had upper extremity uh, blunt trauma. And so they got to the uh, emergency room within two hours. Uh, Those that had fractures and dislocations and of skin disruption were not in the study. So this is for non-fracture pain where the skin is not broken. And then they blinded them. They them They gave them the stuff in containers and had them apply it to about a about a two inch area on the extremity for two minutes, and then they held on to them, kept told them keep using it three times a day, and then they measured pain at one hour, two hours, twenty four hours, and seventy two hours. And the topical pepper oil actually worked better than the topical non steroidal. It reduced pain uh, substantially. It the number needed to treat was three people, highly significant. And it had a greater than 50% reduction in the pain score at the end of the treatment. So this is quite effective, quite cheap, and readily available without a prescription. 
Now, capsaicin does sometimes cause burning, itching, and rash, but there was no significant difference between the two blinded treatment groups in this side effect. So I'm going to be using this a lot more than I have been because this is, this, you know, sounds really pretty good. I like cheap. I like effective. I like natural. I like not having, I, I like that it works. So I want to share with you another study related to that uh, email about uh, bo- about stress fractures. Bovine colostrum supplementation improves bone metabolism in an osteoporosis-induced animal model. So this was, uh, colostrum is the pre-milk that comes from, uh, and of course, bovine means cow. So we're talking about when a cow first has uh, given birth, before the milk gets started, there's a compound called colostrum, very high in antibodies. And this has been used in, I use it a lot for people with leaky gut or other GI effects. The colostrum is super high in antibodies. And so if you've got an inflamed gut, it's extremely soothing. Part of what it's doing in baby cows is getting them ready to resist all of the bacteria in their environment. And of course, if you have adverse bacteria in your gut or a problem with your microbiome, it does that too. So this was a very, very sophisticated study. And I wanted to, first of all, point out that we don't really want to keep having to give people the bisphosphonates. We know that after five or 10 years on these drugs, there start to be some weird fractures, still less than the fractures you're trying to prevent. But there is one group, Asians, Asian women, who are at an an extremely increased risk for these atypical fractures after about 10 years on these drugs. And I don't believe that there are many people who are thinking about that. This is the standard of therapy, and so this is what people are being given. We can also use uh, riloxifen. That's a drug that uh, we that's available for osteoporosis. We can use calcitonin, um, a synthetic polypeptide. Both of these are very effective, but unfortunately, the riloxifen can cause deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. And the calcitonin has, oh, damn, after 10 years, more of an increase um, w- with uh, cancer. This natural food-like substance is very, very promising. Now, in this study, they used an animal model for osteoporosis. So we're not talking about humans. It was part of the reason that they did that was that they were going to be biopsying their bones. And what's in bovine colostrum after all? It's lots of things that we know are good for bone metabolism. Lactoferrin. Uh, lactoferrin is a compound that is almost an antibody in the gut, but it stimulates osteoblast differentiation and proliferation. It decreases, osteoblasts are the bone building cells. So when it gets into your system, it actually causes you to have more bone building building cells. It also inhibits the production of osteoclasts. These are the bone breakdown cells, and it reduces their speed at reabsorbing bone. This is all about lactoferrin, which is which bovine colostrum is full of. And 
there have been studies looking at these animal models showing that besides increasing bone buildup and decreasing bone breakdown, that it actually improves the microarchitecture and the biomechanical and strength parameters of bone. We don't entirely know exactly how this works, but we think it's related to rankle, which is a gene suite uh, in the tumor necrosis factor, and it regulates a lot in bones. In fact, one of the antibodies, the artificial antibodies, monoclonal, that, that is approved in the U.S. for treatment of osteoporosis is denosumab, which uh, directly affects the functioning of rankle. So what we're finding here is that this natural substance is able to do most of what our drugs can do in an animal model. Uh, I think that what's particularly interesting to me about this is that these very same animal models have been used to validate the effectiveness of the osteoporosis drugs that are currently approved in the United States for the treatment of this. So until such time as a human study is done on a compound that cannot be patented and is essentially a food supplement, I think we have to go with what I'm seeing there. So those of you who are worried about osteoporosis and are looking for a natural product, you're probably going to want to look at this study. How much do you need? You probably need about half a gram per day per kilogram, which is basically going to work out to a couple of tablespoons of powder that could probably be mixed in with a shake. I went online and found that you could buy a two kilo bag of the powder for uh, $299, two pounds worth. So that's 2,000 milligrams. You do the math and it starts to look affordable. So good luck to all of you out there. And I hope that this falls not upon deaf ears. Let's go to some more emails. This one from Sybil in Soquel. Dear Dr. Don, after having tried every natural remedy out there that could help migraines, nothing worked, including feverfew and the time amount suggested. 400 milligrams of ibuprofen does nothing because I wake up with a migraine and then it is too late for it to work. My doctor wants to prescribe me sumatriptan. Because my, mild, my migraines are mild with no aura or vomiting, but I don't feel good about taking such a medication after looking it up. I think I would rather live with the pain. I've read that L-tryptophan might work. Uh, it's the only thing I haven't tried yet because I have read that it isn't safe. Uh, what's your take? So that was Sybil's first question. I'm going to answer that one first. And L-tryptophan is safe. Okay, There is a problem uh, some decade or more ago with a allergic reaction to a particular company's L-tryptophan. And it turned out after investigation that the people who uh, that that people who developed this syndrome called eosinophilia myalgia which basically means that the allergic immune cells are invading your bone your muscles and they shouldn't be there but they're treating your muscle as if it were a foreign parasite not good but the tryptophan that those people were taking was contaminated with a toxin that was part of the synthetic process that hadn't been properly done. And so you ended up with this toxic 
intermediate that ordinarily isn't made when you synthesize L-tryptophan. That has been absolutely fixed. And so I think it's reasonable for you to try this. Doses of up to 500 milligrams a day are completely safe. I'd suggest taking it in the evening. And uh, so there you have it. Follow-up question from Sybil on a different topic. I also had a fitness tracker, uh, but I stopped using it because I thought I might get too much radiation. Do you think it is safe using them? I also still use really old-fashioned wired headphones because I have reservations about using earbud. Are they really safe to use? Um, Okay, well, I'm going to start out talking about uh, EMF a little bit here. And I do not think that the fitness tracker is a problem. In general, my I, I think it may vary from fitness tracker to fitness tracker. My fitness tracker does not update unless I tell it to. I have to basically go to my phone and tell it to update the app in order for me to see anything. The dose of EMF that's going through you is dwarfed by the fact that we are surrounded by Wi-Fi everywhere. You go into a coffee shop, you are bathing in Wi-Fi. For those people who are really sensitive to EMF, and I think there probably are a few people who, for whatever reason, their mitochondria is a little bit different, they do get a headache. They do get problems from the sorts of ambient doses that most of us don't notice. What I do have a little concern about is the earbuds that are using Bluetooth or that are, uh, and my reason for that primarily has to do with, I don't want to hold my phone up to my ear. I like to use the speaker or I like to use a headset with wiring because there is enough heat from the microwaves coming off your phone that you will heat up your brain and you'll heat up your uh, eighth cranial nerve and there's data that is epidemiological, so it's it's by definition not definitive because you have no placebo. There's lots of other factors that you can't filter out. But people generally have a handedness about their phone. And in countries where they've tracked this, the rate of the benign acoustic neuroma, this is not a malignancy, it's a tumor, however, and it's occurring in on the side that the person holds their phone up to. So when I heard that, I started using my speaker. And when I couldn't use my speaker, I used a wired headset. I really don't want to lose my hearing. An acoustic neuroma, you'll lose your hearing on that side. Uh, There's also studies, double-blinded, which show that sperm are affected by cell phones. You can see it with a microscope if you have some fresh sperm and put it in a dish, and put a uh, a phone that's on, uh, on top of the little Petri dish, uh, you will see that the swimming gets weird, that the sperm, some of the sperm stop moving. It is enough peat to affect fertility, which is not good. This is why the sperm are outside of the body, is because body temperature is bad for them. Heating up sperm is obviously... Ha- in fact, I don't know if you know this, but that for a long time there was efforts to figure out a male form of contraceptives. And one of the things that was tried was actually essentially a testicular heater 
and this was looked at quite seriously. If this could be applied periodically, maybe uh, maybe for 15 minutes every night or something like that, would we be able to reliably sterilize that sperm? And so far as I know, those studies were promising, but uh, consumer acceptance was felt to be nil. And so, uh, yeah, so it didn't go through. Well, I've just got a minute or two before the show ends, so let's go to an email from Bart in New Hampshire. And Bart uh, says, could you maybe comment on the article below on vitamin D? Through the years, if I hear a negative report on vitamins from conventional medicine, I think doctors are always down on what they're not up on. So, uh, Bart, I don't know if you remember in 2002, almost exactly 20 years ago, actually, if I'm recalling correctly, a study came out called the Women's Health Initiative, and it came out with a big splash in the press, uh, one of the very first flashy press releases being done a day or two before the thing actually got published. This was sort of a gentlemen's agreement that we weren't going to do that, except, of course, when we do. And uh, that led to a great deal of chaos, probably 20 years of women being afraid to use estrogen, afraid it was going to kill them. And it turned out to be a deeply flawed study, the results of which were subsequently retracted, but that didn't make front page news. Doctors are back to using uh, hormone replacement therapy in women, but they've approached it very quietly with lots of uh, con- with lots of consent forms because everybody knows, including d- ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that estrogen is dangerous. Well, I feel like this person, the Mar- Meryl LeBeouf at the Boston Brigham uh, and Women's Hospital is doing, is pulling a woman's health initiative. She has been trickling out negative studies about vitamin D. It's actually all the same study. And they looked at about, they 25,000 people, they were on vitamin D, 2,000 units uh, per day, which is not a big dose. And they looked at heart disease. Oh, doesn't prevent heart disease over five years. Uh, they've looked at uh, hypertension. They've looked at cancer. And, well, it doesn't prevent cancer after five years. Must not work. It's a very poorly designed study. And it doesn't ask, and it's five years is not long enough to prevent cancer because you've already got the cancer by the time you enter the study. And it may not show up for 10 years. So, it's too sm- it's too short, the dose is inadequate, it's a poor design, and they don't ask the right questions. So in with respect to this particular vitamin D study, ho- hokum it is. Hokum. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at... Ask DR Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.